To me, it's a matter about not getting so constrained by the focus of information you're getting and see it as a sole purpose, but be able to see the connection points to other things that are relevant to you. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from legal leader and innovator Stephen Poor. Stephen is Chair Emeritus of leading employment law firm Safarth & Shaw, which has 900 lawyers across 17 offices and multiple continents. He led the firm as chairman for 15 years, introducing a range of industry-leading innovations. And he now focuses on the firm's client-facing technology strategy, which includes robotics, AI, and cognitive computing. You can find him on LinkedIn and on the firm's website at safarth.com, S-E-Y-F-A-R-T-H. In this episode, Stephen shares insights on discerning relevance, distilling facts, thriving for lawyers and legal students, consciously seeing connections, and far more. Keep listening to learn from Stephen's great insights. Stephen, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Ross, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. So you are a lawyer. You also... You don't have to say that with such hesitation, Ross. It's not, <laughs> well, it's there's, not there's, that there's bad. so much more than that. That's why. That's what I was saying. <laughs> your starting point is you're a lawyer, you run a major law firm, and you are also delve deep into the emerging technologies that are changing the legal industry. So there's plenty to keep on top of there. And I, I'd like to just actually go back to the beginning. Uh, when you were a law student, when you were studying law, did you have any practices that enabled you to take in the amount of information that it requires to uh, pass your legal degrees? Well, i give you some, some context. First, um, I'm old enough now that when I was in law school, it was pre-internet, pre-computer-assisted research was only just starting. We had these uh, fancy things called Lexus and Westlaw terminals, but nobody really knew how to use them. So uh, the information you needed was in in these things we used to have called books, mm. which I, I know you're writing one, but... Uh, uh, and so... As you're looking at information for uh, learning to be a law student, you're getting it from your your colleagues, your your other law students, the professors, and the books. What's interesting about the books 
is, is something I, I picked up in your uh, uh, in in your book, uh, a theme you picked up on, which was that one of the things you had to learn was you you had what were referred to as as keynotes. There were there were uh, synthesized information where you're trying to where they're trying to sort the cases into topics. And oftentimes you got the most useful information, not by the keynote you were particularly on, but by ones you, your eyes happen to catch by, by going through the book, by going through the pages. And I, I always found that to be a fascinating dynamic that's replicated itself over the years in different, in different formats where useful information is not always exactly what you're looking for. It's sometimes peripheral or or in in a framework that's not usually uh, capturable that easy, uh, but it was it was it was a lot of a lot of time in the library, a lot of time. I, I was on the law review, so there was a lot of information each member of the review distilled and shared with other members of the review. Um, so it was it was that sort of thing, and I'm still not sure we captured the information we needed to become a good lawyer. In fact, I'm certain we didn't. We became good law students, not necessarily trained to be good lawyers. Yes, well, uh, there's. Uh, I think we can always point to uh, ways our education system can improve to, to actually uh, create people ready for the workforce. Yeah, I've got a whole riff on that, but that's not the point of this discussion. <laughs> So I suppose moving on to the next step. So that's to, to a point when you're a legal student, it's, it's relatively static law. Now, that is the law as it stands and be able to then, you know, grasp that and understand that and be able to, uh, you know, use that as a foundation for practicing law. Then the next step is that the law starts, is changing. And I suppose bringing in new cases or, or changes uh, or different legislations or different situations. So as you're evolving as a lawyer, what are the practices that enable you to keep on top of the change that mattered to you? Well, the, one of the things the firm was always good about, still is good about, is trying to make sure its lawyers stayed abreast of changes in the law that were applicable to their practice. And there, there are many specific areas of the practice, practice of law. I grew up as an employment lawyer here in the States. And so the firm was always good about every day publishing digest of new cases, of, of legislative developments. Now, you couldn't keep abreast of what was going on in all 50 states. Um, so it was mostly federal cases and cases in the state in which your office was located. Uh, particularly early on, you didn't do a lot of work outside of the state in which your office was located, uh, at least as an associate. So you had a more of a confined sphere that you had to keep track of. That changed over the years. But so every day you would get a, there were publications that were CCH, BNA, where they would distill this information and they would they would sell it to Law firms who in turn would distribute it to their attorneys, and every day you'd get a you'd get a list of blurbs of cases or legislative developments that you had to look at and and see how it fit within the practice you were developing. And some did, and some didn't. 
Um, but that's basically how you did it. So, but then that's reading material. But part of it has been able to flag, as you say, the degree of relevance to you. But is there then ways of taking notes or to referencing or other ways to pull that into that you that what you know you when you know that it's relevant, that it starts to become part of your own knowledge base. That's right. I mean, it's, an, it's obviously it's moved to electronic format now, but the same systems still exist, uh, different companies, different sources. Um, but yeah, you would get it either back in the day in written format or now electronically. And you had to discern the, its relevance and how it applied to you and how that how that fit sort of depended on where you were in your career as a as a young associate you're responsible for writing briefs and writing memos and knowing the knowing the specific case law as you moved into a partner more senior attorney level you needed to know uh, more trend lines trying to th- as you're advising your client trying to understand the developments in the sense of where things are likely to go, what it means going forward as opposed to what it meant going backward. So you're you're looking at the same information, but you're look as your as your career is evolving, you're looking at the information differently and using the information differently. So I'd like to sort of come back to flesh that out a little bit, but perhaps going on to the the sort of this you know additional theme which I think almost all lawyers need to be across, and certainly you are deeply, is how technologies are changing the nature of law. And so that involves understanding the technologies or the underlying technologies to a degree. Uh, what are the some of the new offerings, the new companies, the ways which those have been applied, how legal firms are changing. So how have you gone about keeping abreast of all of these, uh, these shifts. It's a, it's a real challenge, uh, Ross, because the, uh, just to give a sense for your listeners of my career, I, I ran the law firm for 15 years and then five or six years ago I stepped down and now I help lead our tech R and D function. So to your point, my job now is exactly what you just, uh, described it as. And so as I think, as I thought about that piece of it in preparation for our discussion today, I sort of broke it into two parts. One, when I first took on the responsibility of working with the units called Cypherth Labs, when I first started working with, with labs, I had, <clears throat> I had a, a baseline knowledge of sort of technology, but I'm not, I'm, I, I was not and am not a technologist. I don't know how to code. I I now know what Python min, means from a technology standpoint, but at the time I thought it was a snake, you know. Uh, <clears throat> so the first thing I had to do was to find the information I needed to get up to a baseline knowledge set to be able to simply function as one of the leaders of this particular organization, the part of the organization. Uh, and I did that in a variety of ways. One, by talking to the uh, fellow who uh, now has day-to-day leadership of the function, uh, who's a fabulous technologist, a, a 
fellow named Byung Kim. And Byung was was kind enough to sort of help educate me as to the tech on the technology side of it. I was already pretty facile with the changes in the profession and the functionality we needed to provide. But I wasn't that facile with the technology and how the technology fit within that changing functionality. Uh, as I got more facile with that, then the question becomes, okay, what's next? What's developing out there? And the world of legal technology and technology general is moving so quickly and developing so fastly, so fastly, so fast that it's it's incredibly difficult to keep up with it. Uh, and so I use uh, a couple of sources. One, I also have a podcast. And on the podcast, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who are legal technologists or in the field. And simply by preparing for their discussions, I learn a lot about what, what's new and what's developing. And so there's a, there's a conversation piece with people who are experts in the field. That's a key component to me. And then there are sources you have to sort of find uh, on the internet that talk about it. Now you've got to filter the information because it's a lot of it's run through pe- companies' marketing functions, and you know you have to sort of learn how to how to look at the information and pull out from it what's real, what's not real, what's hype, what's substance. And there there are a few organizations out there who've been around for a while. Ed Walters at Fast Case, for example, has been around for a very long time. And, you know, they've got a solid organization. And you you read his writings, you read his blogs. Bob N. Brogy is another guy who you read his writings, you listen to their podcast. You always get quality information. So it's a matter of figuring out what sources you need to get the information you need. What are the reliable sources, the ones which will give you insight, which you, you've, I suppose, pre-assessed so you don't need to uh, keep on uh, working out whether it's uh, biased or not? Yeah, and, you know, particularly in, in this space, there's there's so much excitement and people get so worked up about the promise of their idea. Well, promise is great, but... What I need for my job now is to know what's 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 real now, what's the functionality this particular software, this particular technology offers now, so I can figure out how it works to move the business and our client relationships forward now, not a year from now, not two years from now, not three years from now, but now. And people get genuinely excited about their idea and you got to figure out what problem are they solving? Are they in fact solving it? And are they solving it now or are they on track to solve it a year or two from now? You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. You know, what strikes me with all of this is the synthesis. 
as in, as you say, building the foundational knowledge in legal tech in this case, and then being able to get to the point where you can, you know, discern what is present and what is promise and how this could be applied in, in practice. So are there any processes in your mind to be able to draw from the elements, from the input over time into building that bigger picture of, you know, what is the understanding of the of the space? Well, I think it's a it's a couple of things. I don't know that there's any process that my mind works on. Uh, I haven't sort of trained the way I think, I don't believe. Um, but it's a matter of seeing connection points. So oftentimes you'll see someone has developed a piece of technology, a piece of software that does X. And X doesn't have any particular relevance to what we're doing, for example. But you'll look at how they articulate X and you'll think, why wouldn't that work for Y? Now, why is something that we're a problem we're struggling with, we're trying to solve. So there've been a number of times where I've said to um, the developer of the software, the technology, have you applied it to Y? Well, no, we haven't. Well, would it work for Y? Huh, maybe it would. And we've been able to take a particular piece of technology that was developed for one purpose and reuse it with some minor adaptations to achieve a result that we needed for the organization. So it's it's to me, it's a matter about not getting so constrained by the channel of information, channel's the wrong word, the focus of information you're getting and see it as a sole purpose, but be able to see the connection points to other things that are relevant to you. That, that's really interesting. It's, it's a slightly different point, but um, Procter & Gamble has been very big on open innovation. And one of the ways which they've done that is articulating their needs. So each of the business units says, this is what we need, and to be able to clear for themselves. And in this case, actually opening that out, not just to people inside the organization, but beyond. But that articulation saying, this clearly, well, this is what we need. Then there's any number of other junctures for what you come across, which then can say, ah, well, with that, you know, it's, it's not a, doesn't plug right in, but we can see that having identified the need, there's all sorts of things which could be adapted to uh, solve that. Yeah, you know, it's it's about identifying what the need or problem is you're trying to solve. And too often, people who have get enamored with technology or get enamored with with software fail to identify the problem they're trying to solve or their need they're trying to meet. They, they, they find something that does something really cool, but then they don't know what to do with it. Uh, and so this, the, the, I had not heard the Procter & Gamble example before, but it's, it's, it's a great one because you're, I need X, I need this problem solved, help me solve it. If you articulate it that way, you find people can frame their solution sets much more precisely and much more accurately for you. So you've uh, educated as a lawyer, you've been a lawyer all your life, though now applying that in a quite different way. Do you think there's, and I think it is a very specific 
thought way of thinking, uh, which has arguably some strengths in a particular domain and may not always be the most applicable to all, all situations. It, but has its, are, it has its downsides, yes. <laughs> but are there any, would you point to any strengths of, you know, this le- you know the, the legal ways of thinking, as it were, the structure of legal thinking, which are valuable in being able to make sense of the world, uh, to... You know, because that is, I suppose, part of what lawyers do—to be able to have make better action, make better decisions, and uh, you know, pull that all together. I'm probably better at describing all the downsides for legal training, but I'll give a go at the upsides. Uh, I think the the major upside is is you're trained as a lawyer, you're trained to distill facts and to look for what's relevant to a a set of analytical structures that are typically pre-existing, a piece of legislation, case law, structure, may be uh, ambiguous. It may have room for dispute as to exactly, but you've got a basic framework. And for most legal problems, you're taking these facts and you're pulling out what's relevant and you're applying them to this framework. And that ability to have this sort of critical thinking component to be able to f- to sort through what's relevant to your inquiry and what's not relevant to your inquiry is a very useful trait, uh, particularly when you're dealing with so much information that's going on now, being able to parse through it with that skill set is useful. Yes. Well, I, th- I think that the word distill, I think, is very, very important because that is a... Yeah, is part of the the training, and I suppose the approach is to take things and boil it down or distill that to the essence or the fundamentals. And this is a fundamental skill today, as we have more and more things which we need to distill in order to to get to the essence. Yeah, I think that's right. The trick for me, as as my career morphed and evolved over the years in the the job changed dramatically two or three different times. It was about applying those that ability to distill information to the second half of it, which is the analytical framework for the problem you're trying to solve. Because as you move into law firm management or now leading a tech function, learning the framework against which you are applying the information changed. And so you had, to, as I said before, I had to learn some of the structure around legal technology and legal technology development in order to be able to apply the information. Or just I give you, I give an example. Uh, I was uh, leading a keynoting a conference in Nashville a number of years ago now, five, five or six years pre pre pandemic whenever that was. Um, and I struck up a conversation with a woman from one of the big big four uh, in their consulting group. And she, 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 all she's introduced herself saying she was in their robotics practice group. Well, I thought that was pretty cool. So I said, you know, thinking that, you know, they have developed, you know, Jetson's kind of robotics I said, what, is, what does that mean? And she, she gave me a primer on robotic process automation. 
And it, I was able to sort of take that information and take what she described and put it in the, because I had gotten up to speed on some of the frameworks that we needed, I was able to see the connection point to what we're trying to achieve. And I said, has anybody ever applied it in legal? Has anybody ever applied it to this type of scenario? She said, no, I don't think so. Well, could we? Well, I don't see why not. And, you know, pretty soon we were the first firm to apply robotic process automation into the legal practice, which now a lot of firms are doing. But it's at, it's at two sides of the coin, the ability to distill the information, but the ability to understand the problem set or the analytical framework against which you're applying it. That's, that's sort of key to figuring out the relevancy of the information. There's, you know, in crude terms, you can think of uh, the analysis as the reduction and synthesis as the aggregation. And so these are both both critical skills. You, you know, those fit together: the anal uh, analysis and the synthesis. Uh, you know, or as a Hegelian perspective, bringing the antithesis. But the I think that the in well many domains in engineering and accounting and in legal uh, practice and so on, the emphasis is so much on the analysis. It is the breaking down into the components, and this has its value. It is critical. It is part of the process. But it also needs to be balanced with the synthesis to be able to uh, pull that together into, you know, be able to see the connections, as you did in this case with the robotic process automation and seeing, understanding, having the context to understand that and then see the applications on how that could be uh, applied, you know, with that more syncretic or broader, broader perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, we, I encourage everyone who's listening to this to, to get your book because you, you provide some, I think some fascinating structure to deal with the information flow that we're, that we're dealing with. And, uh, I, what I found, it, it gave me a structure I hadn't really thought about before, but one that makes a lot of sense. But this this flood of information, if you're not able to quickly parse it and sort it mentally and then put it into context for what's relevant for you, and you you make the point in your book about, you know, the different areas of various domains in which we gather information. We're we're talking about professional domains. But the same applies for personal or cultural or general information uh, because there's so much information out there. If you're not able to really distill it and apply it, it just you just get you get overwhelmed by it. Yes. I think one of the things I'm picking the most out of this conversation is that idea of the relevance. And I think that is something which is a particularly, you know, I mean, it's not purely, of course, in a legal domain, but I think that is something which is very is very central to the legal ways of thinking is this idea of relevance. But the relevance requires, you know, to have that context. You need to know, well, there, what is the context for which this is relevant? And so I think that there is this, you know, this, this is a form where the analysis can be very valuable in being able to, 
you know, be, have that clarity where you can identify relevance or potential relevance, and then to be able to hopefully make the connections between those, those uh, pieces as you uh, observe those and, and hopefully discard the things which, you know, are outside, um, you know, you don't need to pay attention to right now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very easy to go off on paths that aren't connected to what your main purpose is. And sometimes that's just fascinating to do because it's you, you wind up in places you never expected to do. You, you, you turn right as opposed to going straight. And next thing you know, you're looking at a beautiful sunset off of, off of, uh, off a beach that you never expected. So, you know, lawyers have a tendency to stay on the, stay on the straight path as opposed to very off. So I, I, I'm not suggesting there's not a time and a place for it, an adventure into information. Uh, gathering because it can lead you interesting places, but your but one's time is not infinite, and if you're going to make that journey off the path you think you're on, I try to do that consciously yeah. and see how the connections are, are bring see if it see if it's likely to lead to something interesting. If it is. That's cool. And I'm at the point in my life where I've got a little more time to do that. Um, but particularly, you know, back when I was running the firm, time was a really precious commodity. And one one of the decision points you had to make was how much can I be go off on these frolic and detours? And how much do I have to stay on what I what I need to know and what's important to my job or to my family or or whatever it is. And then you're constantly adjusting that as you go through life. Yes, no, I think that's a really important lesson is, is both that there is this, you need to be this consciousness of how much you is appropriate to stay on the straight and narrow, as it were, in terms of attention or, or go more broadly, but also that that is changing. And there are different phases or times, then there are times when it is entirely appropriate to go a lot broader or, or sometimes not so much. Yeah, you you sometimes if you go if you go broader than you think you need to, it can lead you to really interesting places and can bring you back around to a more useful information. But if you do that too too often, you you wind up spinning more in circles than anything else. So, Stephen, to to round out, is there any uh, closing advice you have for uh, you know those who you know seeking to make sense of change and massive information and uh, shifting technologies as you are? Well, I think uh, for, for me, it, and, and this echoes some themes in your book, uh, it's about being mindful about what you're using the information for or what the purpose of it. And by mindful, I don't mean has to be just business oriented or a specific set. It could be gathering information just for the pure joy of learning something uh, as well. But to be be thoughtful and conscious about how you're using information, because if you don't, you just get overwhelmed by it. Absolutely. So thank you so much for your uh, time and your insights, Stephen. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having me on, and good luck with the book. Thank you for listening to the show. 
If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.